Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. Before we get started, standard disclaimer. None of this is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is a prominent investor in the uranium space who has been investing there since 2014. Fabi Lara, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I I need to come with my own disclaimer to say that early is wrong in investing. (laughs) So I have have that claim to fame, you know, I've been (laughs) wrong for a long time. Thanks for having me. Until you're eventually right. Um, So let's start off with your own journey in investing. When and where did you get started and how did you specifically get attracted to the uranium space? So I think it was a little bit natural for me because I was nailing the top in silver in 2010, 11. So I got in at the very top. Um, And so buying actual silver coins was my first ever investment in my early 20s, right? And so you know, got onto YouTube, started to watch all the videos, you know, online. I think it was the first wave of that. But when you kind of study it a little bit, you see that actually there were silver bugs that were much older doing this in the 70s and 80s, etc. But um, I caught that wave. And so bought silver at the top, array. Um, then that was 2010-11. Uh, got into Bitcoin briefly in 2011. Believe it or not, I made it out with like zero gains whatsoever. So my my the the beginning of my investment uh, sort of hobby was extremely unsuccessful. In 2012, I started to do spread betting, which is the same as contract for differences uh, everywhere else in the world. So basically, uh, you take the price. Of- example you and per dollar amount that it goes up or down you make a bet of say ten dollars a hundred dollars whatever and then you win or lose based on how long you're willing to hold that bet um it's very similar to to investing but in a more leveraged way and so i did some of that and for that i actually was doing technical analysis and just very very basic stuff looking at different moving averages and, you know, just looking at resistance points and things like that. And then I actually made a nice little gain of, I think, 80% in like six months. And then for the next six months, I like lost all of that and had like 4% (laughs) at the end of it. And I'm like, hmm, that was a lot of work. I should have stopped when I was winning. And, And then I realized that actually the uh the thesis was that i was looking at i believe at 21 day moving averages but i was in front of the computer all the time trading it for shorter time frames than what the charts were telling me so my anxiety was getting the best of me and the i, I couldn't make sense of the thesis versus my style of trading and i'm like no this is too much but, you know, even when I made money and I was trading on a daily basis, I didn't enjoy it because I, I was so anxious. Right, I had to be in front of my computer and sometimes the Internet wouldn't be the best, you know, and I'm like, OK, you know, I, like this is too much stress. I don't want to do any of this. Let's try it the other way around. Let's 
just find something that we can put our money towards and then watch it every now and again. And that's when, you know, watching a, a ton of videos, I started to hear about uranium. Way back in the day, the people who were talking about uranium in 2014 and a little bit before that were the people who had actually lived the, the, the last bull run. And the stories that they told were absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable. You've, you've heard it all before, you know, the 10 cents to one cent to $10 and, and all of that. And so I started to scratch my head thinking, hmm, if just holding can actually be an advantage for some people in the market, I think I'm very good at doing nothing. Let, let's try our hand at that. And so that's when I uh, started to you know, put a little bit of money towards uh, investing in uranium. I understood the thesis very, very shallow, um, shallowly. I'm pretty sure that's not a word, but now it is. And, you know, from, from then on, I started to look into different companies, kept with, you know, some gold stocks and copper stocks, things like that, but always keeping uranium because the uranium thesis didn't really play out, even though I had made gains you know, uh, I think from 2014 to like 2018, 19, I, I did make gains on the stocks that I bought, but I didn't make gains because the thesis had played out. It's just the companies became more popular. And so I was like, okay, but the thesis hasn't played out yet. So I'm going to continue to hold and roll my gains into new companies. So yeah, that's how I started. And here I am a few years later and, and still into uranium stocks. And the thesis is still playing out slowly but surely. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, so you gave a presentation at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference back in May of this year. You mentioned you built a framework to identify trends in the market based on Charlie Munger's 25 cognitive biases. That sounds very interesting to me. So how did you build this framework and how has it served you? Okay, so every time that a human being makes a decision, uh, they're coming from a place of trying to fulfill certain needs, right? I mean, the need for me to be here talking to you today or for you to get up in the morning and brush your teeth, et cetera. There's always something that we want that's the underlying reasoning for us to do absolutely anything in life. Um, that becomes very apparent when you start trading or investing, um, especially when you're trying to trade short term. You find that greed and fear are such strong levers that they make people throw their lives away completely um, or, you know, make a billion dollars in a day. And so those swings all go back to, okay, how are humans making decision? And the way that humans make decision can sometimes be put into different categories. Now, uh, Charlie Munger has, has brought to light 25 different co cognitive biases. Some of them don't really apply very much uh, to our decision-making in stocks. For instance, one of them is the use of drugs and alcohol. I don't know about you, but I don't like to intoxicate myself before making an investment decision. There are people who would tend to disagree with me. Uh, but there are certain things that will actually um, play out in a, in a way that we can only see now because of social media that allow us to identify certain um, social uh, characteristics that tell us that this may be a trend that's worth following, right? So you have the, the, the actual uh, thesis of invest 
of investment, whether it's, you know, a, a supply and demand imbalance, that's going to happen whether people believe in it or not, right? But the way that I like to invest is I want to look at two different things. So there's the fundamental truth of is there a supply and demand imbalance or is it going to come down the road very soon? But the second part and the part that I think I get into most arguments online with that people don't seem to give uh, much attention to is the psychological game. It's the market game. It's really asking yourself, how are people going to perceive what's happening in the market? That's where the big game is for me, more so than the supply and demand balance, because we can all look at the numbers for uranium. We all know there's a supply and demand imbalance. And we all are looking at the same sources for information to tell us, yep, there is an imbalance right there. There you go. Congrats. But how is the market reacting to it? You know, the, the people who are betting money on company A, B, or C, they're doing so because of the psychological triggers. And what I showed uh, at VREC uh, this past May was that what is happening uh, socially on Twitter today and on YouTube with people coming out of the woodworks, talking about uranium and actually, um, you know, calling themselves uranium investors, that was really easy to see from a social psychological standpoint way back in the day, as early as 2018 and maybe a little bit earlier than that. So there are a few things that, that I can tell you right now, if you want to, that are easy pointers. Uh, one of them is when, especially in mining, this uh, applies more to mining than, than it does with technology, for instance. With technology, the buzzword is it's something new. It's groundbreaking, right? People believe that the future is all of a sudden going to turn 180 and this is the new way. So there's a lot of FOMO you know, fear of missing out because you don't want to be left behind with a typewriter when everybody's typing on their phone. With mining, it's different. What we want to see in mining is what is this similar to? What is this potential bull market similar to? And when we look at it in uranium, it's absolutely massive, right? The amount of gains that people made, I've heard Rick Rule say, I don't know how many times that the worst juniors did 10 to 15 baggers. Like that is mind boggling. Most people would be happy with those gains once in a lifetime. And that's it. Like you've made more money than all of the money managers in the world could ever dream of. Congratulations, you cannot retire. And so when you look at that, that is one massive thing in mining that really works to get people's attention. And it is true. It's based on facts and you can go back, you can look at the charts and you can verify it. Great. That's one thing. The other thing is yes, fear of missing out, right? Because there's always a reason as to why the bull market is just around the corner. We never really know what's going to trigger, you know, the, the whole market or enough of the market uh, sentiment shifting so that the price actually catches on. And because we never know what, what, what is really going to trigger it, there is that anticipation, which is a, another lever as well. So there's the anticipation that the past is going to repeat itself, um, and there's the fear that you're going to miss it. That, to some people, is enough for them to pile onto something. But one of the most important factors is somebody else needs to be investing in this crazy thing too, right? You do not want to be the only one that has seen that this mineral is going to absolutely explode. It takes a 
real hardcore contrarian to actually be a contrarian. We only want to be contrarians because, you know, it's safe to be a contrarian. <laughs> it's it's a strange uh it's it's a strange thing to say because it's a it's a weird paradigm, right? We all know that in commodities you need to be a contrarian in order to fully realize the meat of the move. But at the same time, you don't want to be the only person in the game because then you ask yourself, what am I not seeing? What don't I know about the market? Because surely there are many other people looking at the same opportunity and they're not seeing it. So where am I wrong in my calculation? Seeing the uranium crowd come together and call themselves uranium investors, et cetera, and you know, having uh, Twitter spaces, making videos, et cetera, that is a fundamental human need for us to say, okay, I'm willing to get invested. And so we would like to think of ourselves as great contrarians. But to be honest, I have come to realize that uh, I'm only a comfortable contrarian as long as I am with other contrarians, which, you know, <laughs> it, it's kind of the opposite of what it should be. But those were the main triggers that I have seen play out personally uh, in my investments. And this this is how we could see that uranium we were just lucky or unlucky that uranium took so long to catch on. And I mean, I remember the price of uranium being stuck at 18, the spot price being stuck at 18 forever. It was like the most boring thing. Nobody even visited the Nomurco website or the their Twitter account. It's like, nobody cares. It's 18. It's just 18 all day, every day, right? And nowadays you go in there at any one point and there's like a long list of gifts and people, you know, commenting and spreading it. And people know what the price is, the spot price is, never mind the long-term price um, at any one point. And that goes to show, you know, that the, the community is growing, which you have to tread carefully at this point. But at the same time, because it's taken so long for it to play out, the community has been formed around it. And that's for better or worse, but it is what it is. Yeah, well, let's touch a little bit on the social media aspect of it, because this is like the first time in human history where, you know, over the course of the last 10 years or so, where you have places like Twitter and YouTube really exploding and becoming almost a, a hive mind of information, which can be a good and a bad thing, especially as it relates to investor psychology. So in this era of social media, where you can literally see tweets coming out every hour or even faster in regards to uranium, let's say, how do you kind of keep a, a, you know, a logical perspective about everything when there's just so much out there, so much information. Um, it's easy to get caught up in the crowd. You know, with Uranium Twitter, we we both know this, the gifts, the memes, you know, mm -hmm. people despairing when the price drops and celebrating when it goes up in a single day. How does an investor navigate those waters and keep a clear head when they're looking at at something like the Uranium space online? So something that I've had to learn uh, how to do, which I didn't do when I first started investing in silver, was to try to, not to rationalize, but try to attach a number or a cold hard fact as much as possible to anything that's happening either short term or long term. So I can go back and say, okay, so the numbers are, and, and this is obviously to be taken with a grain of salt because these are not exact numbers, but it is believed that approximately 190 
um, million pounds of uranium are consumed each year or recently. And we produce about, I think, 140, something like that, right? The numbers, they fluctuate a little bit. And then there's the fact that the secondary supply is switching, you know, there's the whole underfeeding, overfeeding uh, dynamics. But in general, you can look at those two numbers and think, okay, knowing that there is a very long lag in the market, knowing that this is mostly um, a market that's driven by contracts and not by the spot market alone, um, does it still make sense, right? Is there still a massive gap or is there is there a gap that is widening or is, is it coming closer together? If you can't attach an actual number to your thesis, then it's really hard to to hold on to anything, right? Because then you're just looking for experts and you become exit, exit liquidity very quickly, right? You listen to expert A and they're like, you know, silver to the moon, uranium to the moon, everything to the moon. And they want you to buy it because mathematically they need more people to buy, you know, at the top so that they can sell for a nice profit. Um, and, and that's the danger also with the community is that we are going to get more and more and more people joining the community. And there will be a time when, you know, people that have been here for a while are going to be such the, the minority that we're going to, you know, be the crazy ones <laughs> that are saying, hey, guys, like we've made our gains. We don't know if, if this thing is going to continue. But the large majority of people are going to say, no, you're crazy. If this is going to, you know, last forever, however long, you know, pick a number. Um, that's not going to be based just uh, on numbers. It, it's going to have to be based on feelings. The feeling being they bought at the top. Right. Buying at the top is always the reason why you want something to go on forever. And at some point, our voices, I think, are going to be drowned out by the large number of people that are going to be like, you know, although you're crazy, this is going to go on forever to the moon, to the moon, to the moon. And so, yes, attaching a number to your thesis, at least for me, really helps me to, you know, ground myself and think, okay, this is likely to still play out. There's still a really good chance this is going to play out. And on top of that, going on to, you know, that that secondary um, play of playing the market, playing the psychology of the market, you have to ask yourself, is this still a sellable story? Is this still a believable story? Is this something that more people can come to believe in and invest in? And so if you see that, uh, you know, the community isn't growing then, you know, maybe that's losing some steam. And I, th I think that that's what we we went through the last six or so months. Um, I know that we're starting to see it come back up again. And, and I've actually seen more and more nuclear activists in the last month, like more than I've ever seen in my whole life. And I, I'm looking at, you know, generalists that are now talking about uranium that I didn't expect to talk about uranium all in the last month. Uh, but if you go back, say, four months ago, then it was like the community was all about fighting each other and arguing and pointing fingers and the bears uh, against, you know, the bulls. And you, you just have to watch that, you know, go back to what's the thesis? Does it still stand? And can you attach numbers to your thesis? I think that helps me to decide to continue or not. And sometimes I'm dead wrong. So how do you personally invest in the uranium space? How have you been investing since you started in 2014? 
do you focus on um, investing in the larger producers? Uh, do you prefer explorers, developers, ETFs? What, what's your approach to the sector? So whenever I started investing in uranium, uh, the ETFs were really bad. I only remember, I think, URA, and it was not a reflection of the uranium market whatsoever. And so I never really looked into ETFs as, uh, you know, a vehicle for me. And I had, you know, the time to look at smaller companies that probably had more potential um, at the time, what really worked for me was looking at pounds in the ground, companies who just sat on pounds in the ground. And one specific thing that I was looking for were companies that uh, tried to do nothing, which is a strange thing to say. But it was a very deep bear market, very long bear market as well. And it was, you know, a matter of last man standing. So I started to look at companies that didn't raise too much, that didn't dilute too much, that had proven pounds in the ground that would eventually come back in vogue because it's the optionality play, right? Your pounds in the ground aren't worth, it, aren't worth anything right now, but when the price picks up, then guess what? You're going to hopefully be uh, revalued to the upside. And then zero to nothing is actually a really, really big climb in the junior miners. And so that's what I looked at. And it really worked. You know, I made like 20 times my money in just one stock and, you know, a little bit more and not more than that, but also, you know, I think three to five baggers in a few other places. What I'm looking at right now is to, yes, I, I still hold some of those stocks, but I'm also looking at the very specific US based companies that are right now really small with resources that are historical, but not yet compliant, right? So I think there's a little bit of a gap in the market. And by the way, I, I need to give you a massive disclaimer. I am likely uh, about to become an insider in one of these companies that will become public later on this year. But this, so this is, yes, I am talking my own book and so is everybody else, by the way. Um, but the reason why uh, I think that would be a decent bet is because I see a shift in sentiment that's US-based specifically that is saying, okay, we no longer want to rely on our former partners or any foreign entity for our energy needs. You know, people are really feeling it in their pockets. Uh, you see the massive uh, energy crisis that Europe is going through right now. The US is looking at that and thinking, we do not want to go through that as much as possible. So let's revert back to homegrown energy, home produced everything as much as possible. You've seen that in you know different bills that they're trying to pass. It is actually surprisingly a bipartisan uh, sort of theme. It has become something that both Republicans and Democrats can finally agree on. Who would have thought that they can agree on something? Here we have it. Um, energy that is from the U.S., uh, I think that's going to be highly favored. And there are a few companies that have not um, been talked about very much because they are brand new. They've you know come to the public. I, I think they've become public in the last six uh, to nine months. And so they haven't really caught that, that really big wave. And I'm starting to look at, at those companies instead of just holding what I've been holding to production, even though I think that's going to be a very good play as well. 
So I wanted to ask about an exit strategy because everything's great when you're piling into to a commodity like uranium that you really believe in. But I think a lot of people have trouble psychologically letting go or knowing when's the time to take profits, maybe at least take your initial investment off the table and play with the house's money, so to speak. Um, what's your approach in terms of figuring out when to sell positions and, and how do you how do you calculate that? That's really difficult because I am not good at taking profits, uh, notoriously so, my broker would tell you. <laughs> uh, I know that my gain is almost 100% in buying low. So I need the chart to look like, excuse my French, absolute crap for me to buy the stock in the first place because I know that my weakness is selling it uh, in strength. Something that people say, you know, would be sell on a double and then, you know, play with the house's money. I don't like to do that because I usually trim the stocks that actually go on to be five baggers, 10 baggers, et cetera. And there's a massive difference between a five bagger and a 10 bagger, obviously, right? You just draw it on a chart and, and the, the gain is quite massive if you're willing to hold it that long. Um, and the fact that it, the fact that a stock has doubled is kind of giving you a sense that you're onto something, right? To trim that position to half, I think might be a good idea if you are scared, right? That the, the whole market is, is just going to disappear or, or crash or whatever. And I think I'm young enough and I have um, enough diversification in other assets, you know, with other investments throughout different countries and currencies and different types of, of vehicles that I don't feel like I need to be that careful with my junior mining investment, because that's risk money anyway, right? And so if it is risk money, if it is, you know, uh, borderline gambling, then I like to not trim my winners because they usually don't just double. It's very rare when you see a play that doubles and then just dies out, right? Usually because I bought it at the bottom, it doubles, triples, quadruples, et cetera. And so I like to, to hold on to them. So for someone who's new to the uranium space and hears the thesis, totally understands and gets it, you know, the new nuclear renaissance is here, definitely. Um, how would you recommend they dive into the sector? Obviously, we don't give investment advice here, but would something like an ETF like the, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust be kind of a, a safe, low-risk play or maybe another ETF or big producer? What, what would you say? Yes, absolutely. The one you just mentioned uh, by Sprott would be would be one of the safest ways to play it. Um, for somebody who's who's starting it and doesn't have such an appetite for risk, then I would definitely look at the you know the ETFs and uh, at Spot. You know the the one the one that tracks the actual spot price of uranium. And one interesting thing that I noticed is that. Coming into a market, you have to ask yourself, how much are you willing to devote time-wise in order to keep up with it, right? If your thesis is that the commodity in and of itself is going to go up, then it makes sense that you would buy, you know, a, a commodity-based, a commodity-backed ETF or, or a trust or something like that. You can do that. That's great. Um, if your idea is to gain leverage over the commodity going up, um, then 
Yeah, it's it makes sense if you're not willing to devote the time to go for the current ETFs. Um, but what I really like to do personally is to get in the weeds and look at the companies that haven't made it to that level yet. Because call it, you know, another psychological trigger, another psychological bias, but a company that comes out and it's worth $5 million uh, Canadian dollars, let's just take an example, which I'm going to try not to mention any names, <laughs> $5 million, and you know it's got easy potential to just catch up to its peers, it's a 10-bagger, it's a 5-bagger, right? Like, that's what I'm trying to do. But the person needs to be able to um, look at so many different options, look at, you know, maybe the producers, the developers, et cetera, and compare them and see, okay, what's the next thing down? Who are the the people that can drive um, either a resource to, to production or a historical resource to a compliant resource? And I, I like the torque in that. And, and I think that even if you're going to invest initially in the ETFs and, and try to be safe, you know, nothing, nothing stops you from looking into, you know, the, the smaller stuff and seeing what else is out there. I am very famous for losing money consistently when it comes to explorers. So like, I just always lose with explorers. I'm not sure I've ever made any money with them. So I, I can't really dish any sort of insightful information on how to win with explorers. It's a very tough game. Some are people there, do it though. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I personally stay away from explorers, but there are some people who have the strategy of just buying a bunch of explorers at a smaller percentage and then hoping that one of them will moonshot, right? Because when they do make a discovery, obviously, it's a, it's a dramatic rise in the equities. Um, are there any other commodities besides uranium that are catching your eye right now and that you're bullish on? So I, uh, from a sentiment perspective, I'm bullish on gold and silver just because they are so forgotten. And these miners are doing so well financially compared to, you know, the last, uh, call it 10, 15 years that it's starting to become interesting to me again. I'm not saying I'm just going to sell everything I own in uranium and all of a sudden pile onto gold, but it's looking um, very attractive. Nobody cares about gold. It's very unsexy at the moment. Um, and the the charts of the general sector, it, it just spells disaster, which is awesome <laughs> for somebody like me who likes to buy it when, when things look like they're in complete desperation. So yes, gold is starting to look very attractive to me. Uh, and I, I'm actually going to throw you like a, a curveball for, for a second answer, which is I think niobium is very interesting. Okay, so niobium is a little mineral that most people have never heard of, a metal that's massively produced in Brazil. I think 93 to 95% of the world's niobium is produced in Brazil currently, which is it just happens to be where I'm originally from. And it just turns out that in general, um, no producer of anything in the world likes to have one supplier for obvious logistical reasons. And I, I like niobium plays as well. Disclaimer, asterisks, et cetera. But it's, it's a mineral that goes into uh, all sorts of things. MRI machines, aerospace, airplanes, uh, it has many different implications and applications. 
I think there's one or two companies out of Japan. I think Toshiba, maybe somebody else was trying to test it as um, a component for EV batteries as well. I don't know how well that's going, uh, but they were testing that. And it's just the metal that makes it so that um, steel is much, much lighter by a factor of I don't know how much, but a lot. And so it saves money, it saves uh, in weight, which means it saves uh, transportation costs, which is very important right now. Um, the cost of transporting just about anything has gone sky high. And I think it's not going to go anywhere, right? And uh, if you're lucky enough to uh, get niobium outside of Brazil, I think that's um, an interesting bet. Well, Fabi, Tiny market. Yeah, <laughs> in- interesting. Ni- how, how do you pronounce that? Niobium. Niobium. I hadn't even heard of it before you mentioned it, but I'm certainly going to take a look. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. For those people who want to hear more from you online, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, well, you can check me out uh, on Twitter at the next big rush. I might just change my name to like Fabi, but it's <laughs> at the next big rush is my handle on Twitter. Okay, great. I'll put a link to that in the description below so people can go visit you there. Thank you so much and hope to have you back on again to continue the conversation. Thank you very much, Jesse. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.